us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, it's Brian. Welcome to episode five of the Lundloop podcast. This is a podcast where we throw off the shackles and constraints of technical analysis and talk about the intersection of markets, trading, life, whatever, in a more free-flowing way. Today I'm going to answer a couple of listener questions. I'm going to talk about one of the most important concepts when it comes to managing risk, which is respecting market mechanics something I think we're all going to have to deal with here pretty quick. And then uh, probably going to put to bed this whole Twitter Elon Musk thing because I'm just, I'm over it. But first, I just got to tell you, I'm really conflicted about this podcast. On one hand, I feel like I should speak in a regular cadence with good elocution and that I should finish all of my sentences and concepts. On the other hand, I just say, let it fly. And the problem is, is that if I do the elocution way, when I listen back to the audio, it sounds fantastic, but it's super constraining to talk that way. In fact, it's so constraining, it it almost makes me anxious. But when I do the let it fly way, when I listen back to that audio, it hurts. It hurts my soul because that's when you get all the ums and the uhs and the so's and the rights. And even worse, you get these sentences that I start And then my ADHD brain says, say something different. And I just take a left turn and truncate them. So I'm trying to figure out if there's a middle ground between being super constrained and super clear and being a little more free flowing and less clear. Now we'll see if, uh, see if I can figure this out over the next few podcasts. Uh, This week, I've got a big announcement. You probably are aware that they, they release uh, podcast ratings at the end of each month. And this month, the Lunloop broke into the top 1 million podcasts. It's Joe Rogan, 999,998 other podcasts, and then the Lunloop. So that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty exciting news. Speaking of numbers, next month, I will no longer have just one teenager in my house. I will have two teenagers. My son is going to turn 13 in May. My daughter's 16, so it's very exciting. One of the things that I found very rewarding about being a father is watching my kids grow up and watching them develop individual personalities. It's also been great to see what they're interested in and figure out if there's any way that there's an overlap between what they're interested in and what I'm interested in. For example, my son really likes comedy, and so we can tell each other jokes and we can watch comedy clips and really share that experience together. My daughter is a fantastic writer. She's she's a better writer now than I could ever hope to be. But we can talk about, you know, essay structure or how to um, to flesh out a topic. So it's fun to to have those little overlaps with them. One area though that there doesn't seem to be any overlap is the world of entertainers uh, or stars or musicians. I remember going into my parents' garage on December 26, 1974, and seeing my father crying. It was really weird because 
I'd never seen my father cry before. And at seven years old, seeing your, your parent cry, it's a little unnerving. And he was crying because they had just announced over the radio the death of Jack Benny. My dad was a big Jack Benny fan. His father, my grandfather, was a big Jack Benny fan as well. If you don't know who Jack Benny is, Jack Benny was a vaudeville player. He was a contemporary of the Marx Brothers, and he had a little bit of success in vaudeville. Then he went into the movies, and he had a little bit of success in the movies. But his real fame came when he started the Jack Benny radio show in the early 1930s. He had that show for over 20 years, and he became a huge star because of that show. He was the number one highest rated um, radio show for almost that whole time. Then after that, he started the Jack Benny TV show, which he did for a number of years. And Jack Benny had this really different style of comedy, totally different from what you see today. It was a super dry type of comedy, and it relied on big pauses. And in those pauses, he would do these looks or these gestures, or maybe say just one throwaway word. And for some reason, he could, get, he could just get these fantastic laughs. He also cultivated this persona of being a skinflint. It was kind of a running gag throughout his career. And one of his signature bits had to do with him running into a mugger and the mugger posing a question to him that he was having a really hard time answering. To give you an idea of how big of a star Jack Benny was when he died, the Nightly News did a 10-minute segment just on his memorial. This is back when there were only three networks and they only did 30 minutes a night of news. So he basically took up one-third of the nightly broadcast. And then the next night after his death, they actually pushed back and delayed all the late-night shows by 30 minutes so they could have a live special report covering the life and death of Jack Benny. That's how big of a star he was. He was a huge icon. However, if you talk to anybody under 50 today, or even under 60, they'll have no idea who Jack Benny is, guaranteed. And I happened to be thinking about this story of my dad and him crying and being upset about Jack Benny the other day when my daughter came into the room and the thought popped into my head, I wonder, how far back I could reference a star and have my daughter know who it is, or, or I guess how much current, I, how, how much more current I could reference it. So I knew Jack Benny was totally out. So I said, hey, do you know who Bob Hope is? And she said, no, should I? Now, of course, inside I'm like, yes, you should. <laughs> but I said, no. I go, how about Frank Sinatra? Nope. I said, how about Johnny Carson? She said, I think I've heard the name, but I don't know what he does. Then I thought I'd take a little bit of a, a, a jump to something that I felt was more current. I said, how about Eddie Murphy? No, don't know Eddie Murphy. 
at that point I stopped. I was like, this is, I, I was really feeling super old by doing this. But it was weird because growing up, even though maybe I didn't have the, you know, I wasn't into the same celebrities that my parents were, I knew who they were. I knew who Dean Martin was. I knew who Sammy Davis Jr. was. I knew, you know, Don Rickles, Bob Newhart, whatever. Yet today, it seems like there's such a difference between what my kids consider celebrities and stars and what I consider celebrities and stars. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there's just so many more of them these days. Uh, you know, obviously the means of distribution, you can create celebrities or influencers like crazy where you couldn't back in, in my day. So there's, there's more of a universe, more noise for them to get lost in. And I was kind of lamenting this and I thought it was kind of sad that she'll never really know about Bob Hope or, or Jack Benny. And then I realized, oh, it's the exact same for me in her world. And I thought back to this event that happened uh, about two months ago. One of the great things about having a community like the Lund Loop is there's a lot of people here that have talents and interests that go beyond the markets. And one of those people is Bruno Ezrubilski. Now you may know Bruno if you're in Discord, he goes by Bruno Drums. And Bruno is a professional drummer. I play the drums. Bruno plays the drums for a living. And about two months ago, he sent me an email and said, hey, my band's coming into town. I'd love for you to come up and see the gig. I thought, wow, that's, that's great. I, I'd love to do that. But it occurred to me, I didn't know what his band was. I didn't know if he was in a band or if he was playing with a, a, a performer. So I did a little Googling and I kept finding the name Mitski associated with Bruno. I didn't know what Mitski was. I didn't know if Mitski was a band, Mitski was a person. So I did a little more Googling and I found out that Mitski is a singer. I thought, okay, cool. You know, maybe some new singer, somebody that plays clubs. Um, and I did a little more Googling and it turned out that I found a, a, a video by Mitski that had 25 million views. I'm like, hmm, okay. <laughs> Maybe there's something going on here I don't know about. So I'm trying to figure out who I should take to the gig. I thought of my wife first. So I text her, I said, hey, do you know who Mitski is? She goes, no. I said, okay, well, you know, I told her about the concert. Would you like to go? She goes, you know, it's on a Wednesday. It's in LA. I, I have to work next morning. I, I'm just gonna pass. All right, cool. So I thought, I don't know, maybe I should ask one of my buddies to go. And then I thought, well, why don't I ask my daughter? She's never been to a concert before. Uh, this would be a fun father-daughter event, so let's just see if she's interested. So I texted her, I said, you know, hey, do you know who Mitski is? If a text could cause a phone to blow up, my phone would have blown up based upon the text she sent me. All caps, tons of OMGs, emojis, GIFs. Oh my God, Mitski is my favorite. I love Mitski. I'm like, okay, would you like to go see her in concert? You know, once again, the phone would have literally blown up in my, my face. Uh, so we decide we're gonna go up and see Mitski. And it was up at LA at the, um, the Shrine Auditorium up by USC. I haven't been to a concert in a long time. My concert game is not really good. And I still didn't kind of get the whole impact of Mitski. So I th said, well, look, the concert starts at 7.30. We'll get up there at like seven. 
So we get up there at seven and there is a line around the block. And I don't mean just a block. I mean like a city block. I mean like the size of a block you would have in New York. And it is four or five people wide. Fortunately, I was able to get a hold of Bruno who came out and got us in and got to meet his wife. Uh, by the way, Bruno, his wife, fantastic people. And, and I so appreciate um, them having us come up there. My daughter had a, a great time. And uh, I sat with a few thousand people for two hours and watched Mitski just power through her set while everybody in that arena sang every single word to each of her songs, including my daughter. And I realized something at that point. Oh, there's a whole world out there that I know nothing about. For me, Mitski is the same as my daughter's Bob Hope, my daughter's Frank Sinatra, my daughter's Johnny Carson or Eddie Murphy. And then it occurred to me, maybe I should show my daughter a Jack Benny clip. Uh, is this the Lund Loop? Got a couple of listener questions. The first one's from John. He says, what do you mean when you refer to a binary move in your videos? So when I talk about the term binary, what I'm saying is it's basically a coin flip. It's one or the other, black or white, as in the market or a stock could as easily move up as it could move down tomorrow because the charts are giving us no edge or no insight. This happens sometimes when you get an extended move up or an extended move down. You expect there to be a big counter trend rally at some point, but there's nothing in the charts that gives you any sort of clue that that could be happening or when it's going to happen. It usually happens because the market's just too stretched one way or the other. And so that's why I say it's a binary. It's like flipping a coin. The other thing that I also often refer to as binary is going into earnings because, you know, I don't care what you say. When you go and hold a stock into earnings, you're just flipping a coin. It could as easily be up tomorrow as it could be down. So that's what I mean when I say binary. Got another question from Daniel. He says, what are the moving averages that you use on your chart? Are they simple or are they exponential? So I use the exponential moving averages, the EMAs. On a daily chart, I use 8, 21, 50, 100, and 200. On a five minute chart, I use the five, the nine, and the 20 period averages. And they're also exponential. I used to use simple moving averages. And then at one point I used simple moving averages for the 10, I'm sorry, for the 100 and the 200 and exponential for the shorter ones, the eight, the 21 and the 50. The idea being that the exponential moving averages um, react quicker to more recent price action. But over the last, you know, five, 10 years, I feel like the whole market has gotten more volatile. So I just went to full EMAs on all the daily charts. I use the eight and the 21 as the short term EMAs. I use the 50 as the intermediate term. The 200 is obviously the long term. The 100 is not, it, I don't even know that it has any validity except for just an objective, you know, a, an objective point on the chart. I don't think a lot of institutions use the 100. So, but I don't know. I just have it there, I guess, for symmetry. When it comes to the five minute charts, I don't know why, but I learned with a five, the nine, and the 20. Uh, I couldn't tell you why. I, I'm sure there's other people that use different short-term um, moving averages 
on the five minute but for some reason the five and the nine and 20 have always worked and as you see on the videos I'll, I'll often talk about a breakout staying above the five or the nine and that being um, the decision point about whether you should close something out or not the the 20 is more of a of a trending uh, EMA intraday it's a you know like you can get a, a stock that um, that breaks above and below the five and the nine a couple of different times over the day but still stays above the 20 and that means that the over the longer trend intraday is is strong uh, is this the lunt loop? okay let's talk about one of my favorite topics market mechanics now by market mechanics i mean the actual mechanisms behind the scenes that keep the market operating smoothly it can be the platforms it can be the exchanges or it can be the actual functioning of a product. For example, on Friday there was an announcement, I think it was Barclays, is no longer issuing any more commodity ETNs. Not ETFs, but ETNs. ETNs are exchange-traded notes, opposed to exchange-traded funds, and the basic high-level difference is that you really don't know what's in an ETN. You don't know how it's hedged. You don't know what the components are. And because of that, it's a lot more exotic and it's also a lot more, uh, there's a lot more possibility for it to blow up if things go wrong. So a lot of these commodity ETNs are connected to the VIX. And obviously the VIX has been you know, going higher lately. So somewhere along the line, I think Barclays figured out like, oh, we may have some exposure on this product and it could blow up. Just like XIV blew up or just like you had um, that that bizarre stuff where um, where oil futures went negative uh, last year, but the other part about market mechanics that I think is important is understanding that how you can have contagion, how one area of the market that you think has nothing to do with you can suddenly become a part of your risk profile. For example, I put up some charts today, some macro charts in the. Uh, weekend strategy video that I don't really pay attention to because I don't know macroeconomics. Not only do I not know macroeconomics, the way that it may or may not affect my day trade or swing trade, I can't see that connection there. I'm sure it's there somehow, but I can't see it. So I don't really pay attention to a lot of macro stuff, but I put up a, a muni bonds chart. I put up uh, the TLT. I put up uh, the US dollar. And the reason I put them up is because they're making these massive moves, right? These really, I don't know if I'd say they're outsized move, but they're, they're pretty unprecedented in some cases. And so the way that those affect market mechanics is that they will push stocks potentially past levels that make sense. So for example, you see Netflix. Now, I'm not saying Netflix is uh, is being affected by macro issues. I'm just saying Netflix has dropped from like 700 to 190. That's gone past any sort of realistic narratives that you would have had a month ago, two months ago, three months ago. It's pushing past a lot of technicals. And there's a tendency when that happens to say it can't go any lower. That's ridiculous. Even though we've seen stocks across a wide variety of, of sectors over the last year continue to go lower and lower and lower. And the reason that they do go lower is because of the mechanics. Somebody has to sell. 
Somebody is being forced to sell. Someone's being forced to unwind. And so the way that, that these macro issues affect us on the shorter term period is that somebody owns muni bonds that has to sell their muni bonds or they have to sell their stock holdings to support their muni bond margin calls. And when they sell their stock holdings, that means the stock drops. And then someone else that owns a big position in that same stock may have to sell theirs, not because they want to, not because they think that the company is not viable, not because they don't think it's going to bounce back at some point, but they just, the mechanics of the market mandate that they have to sell. And that's when you get things that break. That's when markets actually break. And so I've told this story a couple of times, but it's literally one of the most important lessons I learned about market mechanics. So this was during the financial crisis. Recently, they had outlawed short selling on financial stocks in Europe. I think it was, I think it was just the UK. It might've been all of Europe, but I think it was just the UK. And so there was a little bit of thought over here. Would they ever do that here in the United States? Would they, would they outlaw shorting financial stocks? I didn't think there was much chance that they would, but I also thought, hey, it's worth a lotto. And I had been trading a lot of ICE, Intercontinental Exchange at the time. So Intercontinental Exchange was trading about 122.50. This was on a Thursday. So I bought some 125 calls expiring the next day. I don't know if they were weekly or monthly, but they were. They had less than 24 hours to expiration. I bought them for 50 cents and I got 10 of them, 500 bucks. Well, what do you know? That night, overnight, they they did ban short selling on about 150 different financial stocks, one of which was ICE. So of course, I'm just over the moon thinking I killed it. And ICE opens up at 131, 132, immediately goes to 135. I see the bid and ask ticking up. Then it goes to 140. And I look at the bid and ask, and the bid and ask is stuck at 1325 by 1375, which didn't make sense because at this point I should have had like $17 worth of profit. Then it goes to 150, 155, 160. And I'm just like, yes. But I look at the bid and ask, and it's still stuck 1325 by 1375. Now this is not making any sense to me at all. I should have $37,000 in profit on this position and it's only showing 13. And then it goes to 165. Now inside my brain, I'm like, okay, just hit the bid, just get out of this thing. But then the other part of me is like, no, no, you're, you're literally leaving thousands of dollars on, on the table. This is your money. You are owed this money, do not sell. I think it got as high as 170, right? So I had 122.50 uh, calls, which meant that I had $47,000 roughly in profit. Yet still, it was 1325 by 1375. And I'm staring at it and I'm staring at it and I just said, you gotta hit that bid. And so I hit it, right? I got out at 1325, made, a, a little over 13 grand. It was fantastic, right? 13 grand for uh, a $500 investment in less than 24 hours, nothing to, to sneeze at. But I was mad because I thought that I should have another 30 grand. Well, after 
the market closed, there was a report on CNBC that said at some point during the day, the options traders, the ones who make markets in the options, they just backed away from the market. They just said, no, we're not we're not making markets, which they can do. And the reason they did that is because the way they hedge their option trading is to sell short and they couldn't sell short on all these stocks. So they couldn't hedge. So they're like, no, we're not going to take a guaranteed loss. So they just backed off and didn't make markets. And that's why it's got stuck at 1325 by 1375. Point is, the market broke. Now, I didn't know that it broke at the time. I just saw that, you know, it wasn't moving the way it should move. And what ended up happening is ICE came all the way back down to 125. If I had just held on till the end of the day and just been stubborn, I would have lost all my money. And that was the, the first time it really came home to me that, oh, markets can break. They can literally break. And I mean, not just breaking like you can't get a, a trade through or there's some snap. I mean, like literally your product can break. So when I see the market doing things that it, that doesn't make sense, I don't usually sit there and try to figure it out. I just get out and then worry about it later. Now, that can be a macro thing or it can be a micro thing. If if it's macro, you're like, I don't understand why this stock keeps dropping. There's no way it should keep dropping. Well, it's probably dropping for a reason that we don't know about. And it could be something that happens intraday. It could be like, uh, I can't get a fill on this or I'm trying to close something out or, or whatever it is. So usually the market breaks at the worst time because it's, it's usually the function of too much, um, too much volume and not enough liquidity. And that often happens when you break important uh, support or resistance levels. Usually it's support levels because everyone's trying to get out. Everyone's running to the door at the same time. And if we look at the market and what state it's in right now, I mean, I think we have some a potential for a very serious downside. And I don't know structurally how the market's going to handle it if we if we you know drop another five or 10 percent. And so I just think we have to be on the lookout in the next couple of months for situations where the market can break. And we have to be careful that we don't have too much risk on at that time, because, you know, you also see this probably in crypto. This is why things going to happen in crypto is people will have their positions in. They'll say, oh, I've got to stop in here. So they'll think that they're they're safe and their risk is defined. And then when the mechanics fail, those stops are not going to matter because price will just run right past them. Um, exchanges will fail. Uh, contracts will fail. Um, so, look, it's just something to be aware of. It's it's that never say never in the market. And, and the bottom line is, if something's not working, if something seems strange, don't sit there and fight it. Don't argue with it. Just get the hell out and you know, live to to uh, to fight another day. Uh All right, so let's wrap up this week's podcast by wrapping up the Elon Musk Twitter saga because I'm so over it. When he first made his investment, I thought, hey, look, we're going to have months or years to benefit from this through a maybe a, a buy right strategy. Then he offers to buy the company out. And I said, look, you can't just offer a premium. I went into a big analysis last week. You can't just offer a premium and steal a company away. And then as soon as I hit publish, Elon Musk 
offered a premium and <laughs> stealing the company away. So look, I'm glad he's taken the company over. I really am. This company has been such a train wreck for the last, uh, well, ever since it's been in existence. It's been run like a social experiment. You've got an arrogant management. You've got a unengaged board and they've just squandered so many opportunities over the last eight years. So I'm glad to see the company go private. I think he's going to probably do some great stuff with it. He's already trolling everybody. He tweeted the other night, he's going to buy Coca-Cola now to put the cocaine back in. Yeah, baby. I like, I like a baller like that to be in the Twitter sphere. So anyway, I think it's a good thing and I think it's going to be fun. Uh, it's going to be better to be on the platform than it's been hopefully the last 10 years, certainly the last two. Um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund loop, whatever you've got me on. Um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelungloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.